So a lot of early career researchers in particular felt that you know, they were very much employed on short-term contracts that were very dependent on research funding and um, it's very uh, difficult to feel uh, or very difficult to have a, a good sense of well-being when you're always worrying about uh, when your next paycheck's coming through or if you're going to have a job in six months, um, which is yeah, ex extremely stressful. Um, and it does have a knock-on effect um, for things like renting a house or being able to get a mortgage. So. Uh, yeah, job insecurity was a, a huge, a huge stressor. Hi there, welcome to our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I am Dani, I am a PhD candidate, and I hope to learn from the academic journeys of other early career researchers or ECRs. Today's guest is Helen Nichols who, after volunteering at a psych ward, was inspired to get an MSc in Mental Health Studies at King's College London, and she wrote a thesis on the use of psychedelic drugs for mental health treatment. However, after working for a while as an assistant psychologist in Norway, Helen learned that clinical psychology wasn't her thing, and instead decided to pursue a PhD. This time, her research is about mental health and well-being of researchers who work in academic institutions. So there's plenty to unpack, but first, let me invite you to check out our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. You'll find more information about our guests there and also get to interact with us. We'd love to hear what you think, so don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app and to subscribe. All right then, let's get back to Helen's academic journey. Helen Nichols holds a BSc with honors in psychology from the University of Reading. She volunteered at Whitchurch Psychiatric Hospital and worked as a mental health support worker at Vail Care Services in Cardiff before she decided to continue with an MSc in mental health studies at King's College London, which she completed with distinction as well. Right after completion, she started working as an assistant psychologist. After two years, Helen switched to a position as a research assistant psychologist, and another year later, she started her PhD at the Division of Psychiatry at University College London. Her research focuses on how working in academia interacts with researchers' personal mental health and well-being, which of course is very interesting to all of us. So, welcome to what are you going to do with that, Helen? How are you doing? Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you for the very lovely introduction as well. Um, I'm doing great, thank you. Very well. Good to hear. So before we get started, as it still is quite early, at least for me, to my me normal too. standards, I'm having a coffee with me. What about you? I am having an English breakfast tea, uh, which isn't very exciting. Um, but as you mentioned, it's quite early in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we need to get started. Cheers. Cheers. All right, so while we're sipping our drinks, let's just get started with a few short questions, right? How is the morning of an assistant psychologist different from the morning of a PhD student? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> they're very different, I think. Um, so um, I guess as an assistant psychologist, I'd have to be at the hospital by 9 a.m., uh, which definitely isn't the case as a PhD student. Um, I think first, as an assistant psychologist, you go into an MDT meeting, uh, which is basically where you gather the psychiatrists, the nurses, uh, the uh, mental health support workers um, to discuss who is currently on the ward at the minute. Um, that usually takes around two hours. Uh, then it's usually a cup of tea, <laughs> a bit of a break, um, and then I'll probably see my first uh, individual of that day for a therapy session um, and then that usually takes me up to about midday which is around lunchtime and as a PhD student as I mentioned I'm not really a morning person so I usually don't get up until about 10 a.m <laughs> and uh, because I'm currently working from home as well uh, just because of the COVID uh, pandemic um, it's more a case of me it's very recognizable yeah <laughs> I kind of just wander downstairs in my dressing gown and uh, yeah, just kind of get started on uh, transcribing interviews, for example. So that's what I'm doing at the minute. Um, and I'll usually do that for the whole day. Um, 
So yeah, very, very different mornings. So not being a morning person, the PhD would be an improvement. I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. When people hear that you've worked at a psych ward, they must have quite a few questions. Uh, at least I do. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most common misperception that people have of what a psych ward is like? Um, I think a lot of people might think that it's a bit like the films. Um, so I'm not sure, maybe people think about, uh, I don't know, like uh, people who are, you know, I hate, I hate using this term, but um, some of the movies use the term like criminally insane and things like that. And it's, it's just not like that at all. Um, often, you know, it's just, just normal people like like you or me who have had you know a tough a tough start to life or had a really difficult life event and just need a bit of help um, to to get through it. So um, yeah, I think that's the the common misconception is that people think that you know it's, it's something that maybe can't happen to them, um, but actually you know it, it can happen to anyone at any time. Right, so it happens to normal people and the people in there um, were just like us. And they can also return yeah. to that state, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then when we connect uh, psychology and academia, do you think that mental health in academia is still a taboo? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. Very clear. Um, do, <laughs> yeah. I guess just based on um, the, the, uh, the research that I've done so far as part of my PhD, um, so... I did a systematic review which kind of explored the current qualitative literature out there on this topic. So um, I explored what is currently known about the mental health and wellbeing of researchers who work in academia. And um, actually, a lot of the data centered around this kind of stigma around uh, saying that you might have a mental health difficulty whilst working in academia, um, because some people felt that it... Um, maybe might prevent them from moving forward in their jobs, uh, for getting that promotion. Um, so yeah, there's still this, this really big stigma, I think, around mental health in academia. All right. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more when we dig into your specific research topic for your PhD. Uh, but let's start at the beginning of your academic journey. So you started out with a BSc in psychology from the University of Reading. What did you do? after you got that degree? Um, I had no idea actually what I wanted to do after I finished my, my undergraduate degree. Uh, so I, I worked in a pub for a bit um, right. as, a, as a bartender and um, <laughs> it wasn't my favourite job I have to admit. <laughs> um, it's, it's a very busy workplace and um, uh, yeah I, I couldn't hack it to, to, to be honest so um, that didn't last very long. Um, and then that's when I started my uh, volunteering at Whitchurch Hospital in Cardiff. Um, and I was a mental health support, well, I was an agency mental health support worker. So I wasn't employed by the hospital. Um, okay. I was a volunteer, so I didn't get paid for it. Um, but uh, it, it really kind of gave me like that kind of first step into mental health. And I thought, oh, I'm really enjoying volunteering. Um, and that's kind of what set me on this kind of path of uh, wanting to begin a mental health-based career or work in mental health. Okay, so that's really where your interest also came from, mm -hmm. right? Um, so <laughs> a pub, obviously, is very different from uh, anything else. Was there never an idea after the BSc to continue with a, with a master's degree? Was that not something that you had on your mind at the time? No, I think, I think at the time I just I wanted to get as far away from education as possible. <laughs> Um, I'm not. I'm not really sure why. Um, kind of looking back on it now, but I. I thought that you know I just needed a, a bit of a break from exams and, and okay. lectures and and things like that. So um, yeah, a master's wasn't on my radar for a long time, like a, a year and a half maybe. So what was that experience like exactly? Like how does it work with volunteering? Why did you not get paid? Was it something you did full time or part time? And what was the most interesting part? about that volunteering work? Uh, so it was um, definitely part-time. So I only volunteered kind of two afternoons a week. So you could say very, very part-time. Um, I guess uh, the reason I didn't go for a paid job um, because at the time I had no experience working in, in the mental health setting. So there, there was no way I was getting a, um, a, a mental health support worker position that was paid. Um, so it was kind of like a nice way into um, 
yeah, to, to get some experience. Um, and I guess the, the most interesting part was that I got to work across um, different uh, settings. Um, so I got to work uh, a little bit on the acute board um, and also a little bit in a community setting as well. Um, and I got to, there was kind of this regular uh, activity that was usually held on one of the afternoons that I attended. Um, we used to all go down to um, a pub that was nearby the, um, uh, the community setting or the community house. Um, and they had a Skittles lane there, so we'd just spend the okay. afternoon playing Skittles. And it was, um, it was a lot of fun. Um, and you, you really got to know kind of the individuals who were, um, who were in the community, community setting at that time. Um, and I just met a lot of great people and it just kind of, uh, yeah, really kick-started me wanting to, um, uh, to work in this area. And then, as you mentioned, in order to actually work in it and to be paid for it, not just as a volunteer, yes. you actually need experience or some kind of education in order to do that. So I suppose that's how you got into the MSc in mental health studies? Yes, yeah. So um, I uh, realized that if I wanted to um, become an assistant psychologist, um, I thought a master's might give me a bit more of an edge uh, to maybe secure um, a position uh, in the NHS. So um, that's kind of the main reason why I went for uh, the master's. Um, but I actually really enjoyed the master's. Like it was one okay. of the best years of my life. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think I, I really enjoyed the research component of it. Um, so in undergraduate, uh, in my undergraduate degree, I. I wasn't really a fan of research. Um, I kind of, <laughs> kind of really struggled with my project actually, and um, yeah, I just, I just wasn't, I just wasn't really very into it, I guess, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But uh, yeah, but my master's project was completely different. It was a topic that I was really interested in, and I had a bit of autonomy over what I could research as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, just, just really enjoyed it. Would you say that maybe because it was a more specific study or you knew what you specifically wanted to do with it afterwards, so what the goal was, would have made it easier for you to study than before in your BSc? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess I, I kind of went to university in the first place because it was sort of this thing that everyone did, or I thought everyone did, okay. after you kind of get your A-levels. Um and I remember my dad saying to both me and my brother, he was like, are you sure, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with, with not going to university if that's not what you want to do. Um, but, you know, I, I did end up going and I'm, I'm really glad that I did, I did go. Um, so it kind of set me on this path. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think kind of, I, I feel like I chose to do the masters, if that makes sense. I kind of wanted to do it. So that really helped me sort of raise my game I guess right. uh, to do as to do as well as I could all the best that I could uh, more motivation for sure yeah yeah all right um, I read that your thesis for your masters was about psychedelic drugs do you want to say a little bit about that <laughs> um yeah so uh gosh it was such a, a while ago now um see if I can remember um so the idea was for us to look at online comments um, on online newspapers. So I'm not sure if you've seen the Daily Mail or the Guardian, but um, the online versions of articles on those websites, um, you can comment on stories and kind of give your opinion. Um, so our idea was to examine those comments um, on stories related to using psychedelic drugs as a treatment for depression. And the idea was to get an idea of public perception around using those types of drugs as a treatment for depression. Okay. And um, yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I think we found that it was very split down the middle. So half of the comments that we collected were very against using um, psychedelic drugs as a treatment for depression. Um, there was kind of this stigma that it's a, a drug, an illicit drug, and should you be using that in a clinical setting and things like that. Um, and then the other half were very much for using psychedelic drugs um, as a treatment for depression, uh, mainly because they had experienced antidepressants or had taken antidepressants in the past 
and found that they weren't very helpful. Um, whereas, and some other people had already started taking psychedelic drugs as a as a treatment for for their own personal depression and found that it was really helpful. Um, so yeah, it was just it was just a really interesting study um, that unfortunately we <laughs> we didn't publish. Um, oh. Kind of kicking myself a little bit there, um, not trying to get that published, but uh, but yeah, I still enjoyed doing it. And it did get your title, uh, the MSc. It so it's not <laughs> like it went to waste or something. We would say right. Uh, actually, it's interesting to hear that you did a little bit of a discourse analysis right in this study because that's also something that i'm doing in my research even though i'm working in migration studies and political science and neuropsychology so it is different but see that somehow the same approaches are taken uh, to these very interesting questions and to see what people actually think about certain mm -hmm. treatments um, in your research interesting all right so after the master of science you started working as an assistant psychologist, which was, from what I hear from you, the goal before you started doing that. And you started at an 18 plus acute mental health ward where you worked for two years before you switched to a position as a research assistant. So somehow I see a switch here again, right? Like the goal of studying the masters was to be an assistant psychologist. You did that for a while, you tried that out. But then you went back to research. So what happened there? Uh, so uh, <laughs> I think I, I started my position um, on the on the acute psychiatric ward, and um, the team was brilliant. I absolutely loved the team, um, and and of course the the service users. Um, but I, I think I gradually found that maybe being a clinical psychologist wasn't quite the job for me. Um, so I guess I'm I'm quite an introverted uh, person. Um, and to be a clinical psychologist, I, I personally always felt that, you know, you, you have to be quite, um, quite extroverted um, to do particularly group therapy, for example. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is only my, my personal views and experiences, um, but I felt like my personality maybe wasn't quite as suited as I'd hoped to, to the role of, of being a psychologist. Um, but, you know, I, I, I still learn a lot as, uh, from my time as a, as a clinical assistant psychologist. I had a great supervisor um, and, as I mentioned, you know, a great team around me. So um, I did learn a lot uh, and I did actually apply for the clinical psychology doctorate um, twice, actually, over the, over the course of the two years that I, um, okay. that I worked um, as an assistant. Uh, but I got no interviews, like, both times. So... I kind of took that as a bit of a sign that maybe this isn't the, the job for me. Um, so then I started to look for another job and I remembered how I really enjoyed research um, at, at my master's or uh, when I was doing my master's. And um, I thought, why not try and, you know, do be, become a research assistant psychologist, see what, see what that's like. Right. Um, so luckily uh, I, got, <laughs> I got the position and I started working in Norwich as um, as a research assistant uh, on in a child, young person, and family service. Um, so it was quite different from um, my clinical role where I was working with adults. Um, so as a research assistant, um, my job was well, my job mainly centred on um, being involved in a service evaluation. Um, so. We were looking at young people's experiences of working, uh, uh, sorry, young people's experiences of using the ambulance service when they're in mental health crisis. Uh, so I interviewed, I think about 12, was it 12? Uh, 10 or 12 uh, young people um, about their experiences of using the ambulance service. Um, and uh, yeah, we analysed the data. Um, I'm not sure if the... Uh, study got published um, because I left to to do the PhD um, before it was fully written up uh, but yeah again you know really enjoyed it um, and that's kind of what spurred me on to apply for a PhD. So again two very different things right two very different positions um, from something we would call industry back to research but let me get back to where you started this um, while you were working in industry as an assistant psychologist Obviously, we figured that you did the master's to do this job. So 
when you started finding out for yourself that this wasn't what you maybe expected it to be, or it wasn't giving you what you were looking for, how long did it take you to be able to talk to other people about that? And how did you find comfortable enough figuring, accepting the fact that this is not it and to be open to try and look for something new? Because sometimes that realization can be very unpleasant. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, so I, I guess, um, especially with my, my partner and my and my family and friends, um, I was quite vocal about it actually in the beginning saying, you know, I you know, I really wish I was kind of more more suited to the role because I, I guess I really did enjoy the job, but I felt like I couldn't live up to it in the way that, um, or give the, the care that, that should be given, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I guess I was quite vocal with, with friends and family about um, about it maybe not being the right fit for me. Um, and I think that's very important to be able to talk to a supportive system about these things instead of sitting alone with it and not knowing how to move forward. Definitely, yeah, their, their support was invaluable uh, during that time, as it is currently. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it kind of really helped me or pushed me towards that realisation that, you know, um, you, you can make a change. So even though you're, you've kind of been set on this path for, or this clinical path for quite a while you know it doesn't mean that you have to stay on that path if it's not the right fit you know you can switch paths um and it was actually a, a call to my brother which kind of really set it in stone um he was like I've, I've found this phd online you should apply for it um okay. and I, I i didn't expect to 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 get an interview never mind um <laughs> get it but uh yeah, I um, filled out the application, and it's kind of all thanks to my brother, really, that I'm that I'm doing it right now, or nice. doing the PhD right now. <laughs> all right, but before you applied for that position that you have right now, you also mentioned that you actually applied for other programs before that. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah. was it a bummer for you to not be able to get into them? And then did that make you think again, okay, what am I supposed to do if I'm never going to get into a program? Or should, what kept you motivated to keep trying? Absolutely, yeah. Like Opening the, the rejection emails from the universities was gut-wrenching. It was, <laughs> it was awful. Mm. Um, and it, it does take you a, a while to, uh, to get over it, I think. Or it took me, personally, quite a while to get over it. Um, but then I, I was still working. So I applied for the first time for the clinical doctorate um, in the UK, I should say. Um, uh, during the first year, um, I was an assistant psychologist um, and didn't get in. Um, and then I had a really good supervisor or a really great supervisor um, during my second year as an assistant or a clinical assistant psychologist. And um, they kind of just kept my, my motivation up and said, you know, okay. you should apply again you know, give it another go. Um, so I so I did, uh, but unfortunately, uh, same outcome. Um, and I, I guess that's kind of when, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's that's kind of when I was like, um, I think maybe a, a change is needed. All right, yeah. And then, um, thank God you kept going because you got in, <laughs> in the end, right? So um, how did you eventually get to a PhD project that fitted you? Right, this third time. Ah, uh, so um, it was kind of all down to this kind of phone call with my with my brother. So he, <laughs> my brother, um, he's uh, also kind of on the the academic route, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, so he's, yeah, he's about to start his his PhD um, uh, next year, I think. Yeah, I think next year, uh, which is very exciting. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so he, I was kind of on the phone to him and. Uh, you know, I was just relaying the news that I'd kind of uh, been rejected from the clinical psychology doctorate again. And um, he was like, well, you know, you you weren't really sure on clinical psychology in the first place. Um, and now you're kind of getting these rejections and it's kind of like, maybe you should think about going in a different direction. Um, okay. And he kind of directed me to this uh, kind of uh, PhD that he'd sort of... Uh, found um, online uh, or the, the online advertisement of this PhD that I'm doing now and um, he thought it was a, a really good fit because it's to do with mental health and well-being, um, it's to do with academics which is a kind of a subject that I've always been been interested in. Um, my 
Uh, my dad actually has a, a PhD, so um, okay. I kind of knew a, knew a little bit about um, kind of academia before uh, before starting this PhD. Well, not not a huge amount now. Um, now I know that now, having you know really gone in depth uh, <laughs> with the reading. Um, but there, there'd always been like a, an interest there, um, and it was also quite qualitative based. Um, and I, I absolutely love qualitative research and, and kind of interviewing and uh, conducting. Uh, things like thematic analysis and things like that. So um, this PhD just sounded like a really good fit. Uh, and I think I applied like a day or two before the deadline. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I ended up, um, yeah, I ended up uh, getting an interview and I guess it kind of went from there. Um, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to meet my supervisors in person uh, during the interview. I actually came down with COVID uh, oh. the two days before, I think, or I can't remember. But um, yeah, we actually ended up having to do the interview online. Um, and yeah, I thought I'd completely messed it up. But uh, yeah, happily, um, it didn't didn't work out like that. And uh, I ended up getting the, the PhD. So despite COVID and being sick, <laughs> you managed to get yeah. the interview. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I, I don't know how. I think um, maybe feeling uh, ill kind of dampened the nerves a bit so I was more articulate than usual <laughs> as, I, as I would be in any other interview. <laughs> so you actually your brother actually found the program for you online just on a website that you hadn't looked at yet because you were looking maybe more at university websites or things like that. Yeah yeah so um, I think I don't even know how he found it he just kind of uh, just spotted it um, and uh yeah, he was just like, you should have a look at this. So I, I looked at the online advertisement and I thought, yeah, that's that looks really good and I really like to apply. Um, I did take a bit of convincing at, at the beginning because um, I'd never really pictured myself doing a, an academic PhD. Okay. So uh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if, uh, if again, I'd be like a good a good fit for it. But, um, but yeah, I have, you know, I have a two really really great supervisors um, so I've had a, a really lovely experience and I, I do feel very lucky because I know that's not an experience that that everyone has during their PhD so that's great yeah all right you're doing a program now that is focusing on um, on researchers in academia and their mental health so, of course, that's very interesting for our listeners because we try to reach as many early career researchers as possible. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your PhD program and your research projects? Yeah, so um, I guess the, the main aim of the project is to um, explore uh, what impacts on researchers' mental health and well-being. Um, and we also want to seek to explore um, how researchers can be better supported in the academic environment. So the kind of first stage of the, the PhD was to conduct a systematic review um, to kind of explore uh, what is currently known about academic researchers' mental health and kind of the, the risk and protective factors. Um, and we did that by synthesising qualitative data, existing qualitative data. And... Um, we kind of found that there is this sense of inequality in academia, um, which can really affect mental health and well-being. Um, and just in the context of my review, we found that this inequality was particularly prevalent among responses from uh, female researchers and also researchers from a black ethnic background. So yeah, there's this kind of real uh, sense of inequality that um, pervades academic spaces. Um, and we also found that Flexibility, so flexible working, is quite a protective factor against um, experiencing uh, mental health difficulties as a result of the, the academic workload, uh, which we found was extremely high for a lot of the uh, a lot of the participants in the studies. Um, they often mentioned uh, having to deal with research work, teaching work, and uh, administration duties as well, all at the same time, and. Um, it could become very overwhelming and it could lead to uh, difficulties like burnout, depression and anxiety. Um, but I guess academia is kind of flexible nature in the sense that you can kind of uh, pick what times you work to a certain extent, uh, depending on your discipline, um, right. did sort of help some researchers kind of uh, manage that workload. Um, 
But again, it was there was very much this focus on practical support, so kind of hiring more staff to help with the teaching, hiring more staff to help with the research. Um, and uh, another big stressor was job insecurity. Um, so a lot of early career researchers in particular felt that um, you know, they were very much employed on short-term contracts that were very dependent on research funding. And um, it's very uh, difficult to feel, uh, or very difficult to have a, a good sense of well-being when you're always worrying about uh, when your next paycheck's coming through, or if you're going to have a job in six months, um, which is yeah, ex extremely stressful. Um, and it does have a knock-on effect um, for things like renting a house or being able to get a mortgage. So... Uh, yeah, job insecurity was a, a huge, a huge stressor, and um, these factors we also found in the second stage of my PhD, <laughs> which is where I um, conducted qualitative interviews with uh, researchers across universities in the UK. And um, the main goal of uh, the interviews was to kind of build on the systematic review and explore these sort of uh, protective and risk factors more in depth. Um, but we also wanted to really consider how universities could better support researchers in this environment and in this, you know, have a, have a better culture, I guess, better research culture. Okay, so those are really the solutions, maybe, to the issues and the stress factor that you found earlier. Yes, yeah. And um, uh, again, it was very much focused on practical support. Um, so uh, we're, I think almost every interviewee uh, talked about getting better job security uh, again not quite sure how how to fix that I guess because it's very very a very systemic issue um, and lots of uh, things need to fall into place in order to I guess get that job security um, but uh, yeah that was that was a huge a huge factor that people thought could be uh, done better I guess by universities um, I think even just making sure that there's sort of this funding bridge between between posts so um, that, you know, people don't have to worry about, you know, getting their next paycheck and, you know, being able to pay rent. Well, a lot of the factors that you mentioned um, that are stress factors are, of course, things that we here in the podcast have talked about with various guests. And it's not like every guest experienced all of these stress factors, but there are quite a few that I think most have encountered at some point in their academic journey. Um, yeah, talking about the workload, of course, that it has so many different aspects to it. Like you said, like teaching, researching, the job insecurity, not knowing what the next step is going to be, publish and perish story, something we also talked about just in the last 50th episode. Um, and something we've also talked about is uh, inequality in academia and how that affects uh, the researchers and what academia or you know universities could do to adjust that, to make changes that are also systematic. So it's not that easy. Um, of course, the flex working, I think, helps. But that counts for people like you and me in social sciences, but maybe not for people who work in labs who have to do their tests and have to be there at certain times, sometimes on Sundays or at night, even just to keep everything running. So we know a little bit about the stress factors. But what are the consequences? You mentioned that people can have anxiety. Uh, what do you see most often? And have you also spoken maybe to correspondents, to respondents, I have to say, right? Who um, stopped their academic journey because it was too much for them? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think anxiety, depression and burnout are some of the most common uh, difficulties experienced as a result of, of, of um, the pressures of working in, in academia. Um, I haven't spoken to uh, someone who's completely left academia due to uh, these, uh, these pressures, but I have spoken to someone um, who uh, is kind of 10% in academia and uh, kind of 90% doing another job in industry. Um, and they mentioned that they left uh, primarily, um, primarily actually due to the job insecurity and, and kind of this, uh, you know, you kind of have to be set on a certain academic pathway, they felt, in order to progress in academia. So you have to do your PhD, get a fellowship, you know, postdoc, and then kind of keep moving up that ladder. Um, 
but I guess just you know it just didn't have that security um so uh yeah that's kind of why that person then uh, moved more into industry I haven't spoken to anyone yet who's left academia due to mental health difficulties but a lot of the participants uh, did talk about mental health difficulties that they they have had throughout their career as an academic researcher and kind of how how um, how they managed it at the time and um, kind of where they're at right now and, and things like that. So you could also have these mental health uh, difficulties and then try to overcome them while you continue doing the work. That is definitely something people do. Do you have any, I don't know if you have any results yet because you're obviously not done with your PhD yet, but do you have any ideas or tips from these people uh, that might help other people who face similar struggles? Uh, yes, so um, a lot of people talked about um, assessing productivity relative to opportunity. Um, so, uh, for example, a lot of uh, female researchers spoke about um, uh, needing to go on maternity leave, but when you're on maternity leave, you know, often your, your main focus isn't on research and getting those publications out and, and going to those conferences. Um, so they suggested that when you're kind of, or when universities are looking to promote uh, researchers, say to, you know, like a, a senior lecturer position, for example, um, they should look at productivity, so their publications, the amount of uh, conferences, they, conferences they've attended, relative to their opportunity. So if they have been on maternity leave for, for say, a year, um, you know, that shouldn't be counted against them. Um, okay. And the same was said for funding applications as well. Um, so a lot of uh, female researchers uh, spoke about um, how, because the, the competition for funding is so intense, often, um, you know, any gaps uh, in, in CVs are often... Um, used to whittle down the field so to speak um so uh yeah that was that was a big um a big kind of change that people felt needed to happen um was to assess productivity relative to opportunity um and interestingly uh from the systematic review the most common uh coping strategy mentioned um was actually perseverance um okay. so a lot of people said <laughs> that um you know it was just their, their motivation to get through is what carried them through uh, to the end of their PhD, for example. So even when things maybe weren't going very well and they, you know, uh, they may have uh, been feeling extremely stressed, understandably, um, they, it was kind of this, this perseverance that drove them to, to finish their PhD. So it must have been very strong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you struggle with uh, with all those things that you've already mentioned. Okay, and then those are the things that you've heard from others throughout your interviews uh, and that you found similar in different respondents. But the second part of your PhD, as you said, is more focused on solutions that are more systematic, right? From academia's side, not from the researcher's side. So do you have any preliminary ideas on what should change? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, just to say those um, things that I mentioned before were uh, results from the systematic review, not the individual interviews. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. That's all right. Um, I, I think there's there's so much crossover between the systematic review and the individual interviews that I, I sometimes get a bit confused as to which results are, are which. Um, but yes, those, uh, so perseverance and... Um, productivity relative to opportunity was uh, the systematic review okay. and results from that. Uh, so in terms of kind of changes needed, I think one of the main uh, kind of suggestions uh, was that uh, I guess things like Athena Swan, which is um, kind of this, I think it was originally introduced to um, address gender inequality in academia. And whilst it has gone some way uh, to addressing gender inequality. Some researchers felt that it uh, didn't quite address kind of uh, pay, power or promotion disparities. Um, so there's, uh, I guess, they sort of highlighted this need to um, kind of talk to uh, those uh, groups who are underrepresented in academia, uh, such as female researchers or um, or researchers from a black ethnic background, 
um, in particular, which is what came out of my systematic review, um, and kind of just getting their thoughts on how you know these pay, power and promotion disparities can be addressed. So that was uh, kind of one change or suggestion that, that was made. And another interesting suggestion kind of came from uh, an interviewee who um, kind of had, uh, I think, had some experience um, accessing university-based uh, support for their mental health, um, but un unfortunately didn't find it too uh, too helpful. I think I think because it, it the uh, the sessions weren't necessarily tailored to the stresses that they were facing in academia, so they they just they just didn't find it very helpful, um, and they thought that a, a helpline for for kind of academics or a mental health helpline specifically for academics could could be really beneficial actually and just okay. kind of allow researchers or academics to um, to talk about what they're feeling and uh, to be able to kind of have someone on the other end of the phone that um, kind of understands what they're going through. I guess they, they kind of made that suggestion because they felt that a lot of the issues like job insecurity are, are systemic and um, will likely take a long time to change. Um, so they felt that, you know, at least in the meantime, um, there kind of should be some kind of support in place to help protect uh, academic researchers' mental health and well-being. So by at least, you know, uh, being able to uh, share their struggles with others, I guess, or with a, with a trained uh, professional. Right. Again, to talk about it really can mm -hmm. make a difference. So you're saying yeah. this, this, that this helpline... Um, would be a temporary thing because obviously it's not a solution because if an institution mm -hmm. says uh, we create mental health issues and if you have them you can call us <laughs> yeah yeah because that's a little bit how it sounds right but if it's temporary then maybe I understand it's better than nothing um, other things I'm not sure if that's also part of your research when you come up with ideas that you could propose for uh, changes within academia it would be very easy to say, if there's a lot of workload for these researchers, just hire more people. Because if there's more people, there's less workload. Um, but is that a realistic suggestion? Do you also look at how academia works to be able to make these suggestions? Yeah, I think this is the thing that um, we kind of encountered in, in quite a lot of the interviews was that, you know, it's, it's difficult to know how to change these systemic issues because it needs to come... Uh, you know, I guess it, it kind of takes like a um, an individual, an interpersonal, and kind of a, an organisational approach to really change the culture of academia. So, um, so yeah, I think you know, particularly things like job insecurity, which is the biggest stressor. I think, at least from what I understand from my research so far, you know, that all comes down to funding. You know, like government funding and, and research funding, and it's just it's kind of like difficult to know where you can get that money from in order to create that security that, that people deserve. So yeah, I think it's, it's tricky, it is tricky. I think what I found going through, kind of just trying to read around the, around the subject um, of academia, is that it's, it's not very clear, the, um, the processes and kind of how academia works. So it's not clear kind of who makes the decisions around, right. you know, whether this person gets you know, job security or this person gets a promotion or it's it's difficult to know where to start, I think, in terms of uh, changing the culture permanently and in a positive direction. I do think that your research is definitely a good start because first you need to know what's happening and um, try to understand those processes before you can actually change something. So I can't wait for you to finish your project and then you can share all of your results with everyone. Hopefully it will benefit uh, both the researcher and the institutions to make everyone's life a little bit easier. Thank you. And hopefully I'll be a bit more articulate in uh, presentations and papers than I have been today. Oh no, don't worry about it. Everything is fine. I understood your research completely, so that's already great. Because I've also that's been good. talking with people from other fields in biology, and sometimes it's much harder to understand, even if they are very clear <laughs> in what they want to say. So don't worry about it. Thanks for all the clarifications. So then we get to the very last question uh, about your academic journey, and that is the next step, right? What are you going to do with that when you finish your 
PhD and all the job insecurity with that. <laughs> um, I have no idea, which I... <laughs> um, yeah, I've kind of been chopping and changing um, kind of career paths um, ever since I finished my undergraduate degree, I think. Um, so it's, it's very much open-ended for me, I think. Um, I've, I've not been put off academia. Um, having a career in academia. I think the job insecurity is definitely an issue, I think, um, because we'd very much like to be able to, to hopefully get on the property ladder soon and try and get our own house, which may not be possible if I stay in this uh, kind of uh, career path. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed, enjoy doing research. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely still a possibility for me um, to, to maybe stay in academia. Okay. In terms of any other options that I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever apply for the clinical psychology doctorate again. I'd hate to say that the door was shut completely on it, but yeah, like at, at the moment, it's definitely not something I'm really thinking about. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just going to keep my options open for now. Um, thankfully, I still have a, about a year to, to try and figure it out before my funding ends. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm... I think I'm going to try and go to um, as many sort of career uh, sessions or, you know, uh, talks as I, as I can and, and get an idea of, of what's out there um, and, and speak with my supervisors as well. Yeah, so it's very good to keep your options open and to see uh, what your options are. Uh, and also, yeah, mm -hmm. like go to these um, meetings about careers and speak to others who've been going through the process like your supervisors, uh, to get uh, an idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same stage right now. I have about another year left. And I'm also trying to explore what the next steps would be. That's where I'm at now. So let's get together in another year and see where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, I have a few last questions just to really wrap up. So the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Uh, hopefully, um, at the end of this PhD, I hope to um, have contributed in a way of better clarifying the risk and protective factors with regards to academic researchers' mental health and wellbeing, um, and hopefully kind of lay the foundations for what change could look like in terms of uh, creating a more positive academic culture or research culture um so that's 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 what i hope uh, to contribute to my to my field okay that sounds fair enough and of course you're still on your way uh to publications and with your dissertation so we'll see what comes out of there <laughs> then who has yeah. impressed you most but what they have accomplished uh well sorry what was the question it's, who has impressed you the most with what they have accomplished, maybe someone you look up to, or someone you think is very who's done very impressive work. I've also had people say uh, their mom. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> I um I think um yeah I think I'm also gonna go uh, with with family. Um, uh, I de I definitely look up to my to my supervisors. I think they're they're brilliant uh, researchers and um, just people in general. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of uh, I guess, um, yeah, I guess just thinking about how far someone has come, I think it would be my dad, actually. So he actually kind of did his PhD part-time. Uh, this was, like, way back in the, the 1970s, I think. Yeah, like, he, it was just such a struggle. Um, I think his parents uh, didn't really see the point of uh, kind of education and higher education. So, yeah, he uh, kind of... Uh, had to make his own way I guess um, and uh, fought against a lot of uh, criticism I guess to um, to eventually go on to finish his PhD yeah he's he's someone that I that I very much uh, look up to well my last question is supposed to be the easiest one and that is how do you relax <laughs> after a hard day of work oh um <laughs> it depends it depends on how difficult a day it's been um so if it's been like a kind of a normal day, uh, I think me and my partner just watch Netflix. Yeah, any, anything that's on Netflix, really. Um, and if it's been a, a particularly bad day, um, 
I tend to play. I'm not sure if you know um, Sims. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like this computer game. Computer game. Um, <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I tend to play a bit of that if it's been a, a particularly bad day. Um, for some reason, it just helps me relax. So I just, I yeah, get that. I get that. <laughs> build houses on Sims. <laughs> they have a new version too, right? It's not like you're playing the one that I used to play when I was in high school. It's like a new version. Yeah, I've seen it. No, no, it's um, Sims 4, yeah. (laughs) Well, Helen, thank you so much for joining us today for this episode. I learned a lot, um, again, so I hope our listeners did as well. Thanks again for listening, too. We would love to hear from you, so don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform and to connect with us on social media with the handle What To Do With That. Thanks, Helen. I hope... um, You were able to tell us everything about your research, Uh, but it's not completed yet, so there's much more to learn. I was wondering if I am allowed to ask a little bit more about your dad (laughs) and his PhD. Yeah, of course, yeah. When you said at some point, I'm going to apply for a PhD, what was his response? Yeah, Um, he, uh, I think he was on the fence, Um, so I think he wasn't uh, so a lot of the same stresses that are present today in academia. So again, thinking about job insecurity, always coming back to that stressor. But um, that's the reason that my dad didn't stay in academia. Um, so he finished his PhD, and there was just no funding. There was no funding for him to do a postdoc. So he had to had to switch careers. Um, and uh, yeah, he. Uh, um, I think I think he did regret not going back to academia, um, so he's very much a teacher. My dad, um, he he loves to teach, so um, yeah, I think it's a, a real shame really that he wasn't able to to stay uh, stay in academia. Um, but yeah, he's a uh, I think he's uh, like proud. I think of me and my brother uh, for kind of um, uh, you know giving it a go. Um, but I think at the same time. You know, he's kind of been through the process of, uh, you know, this this worrying about, you know, when you're going to get your next contract and, and how secure it is, or how secure a career it is. So, um, yeah, he's, he's very much on the fence, but, um, you know, uh, I think he'd be happy either way. So if we decided to stay in academia, he'd be like, cool, go for it. But equally, if we were like, you know, not sure we want to, to stay there, he'd be similar response just say okay you know well, do what you you know like to do but you have a passion for sounds like a very supportive dad i'm glad to hear that <laughs> he is <laughs> he is um i'll have to tell him to listen to this podcast oh, now you have to yeah. <laughs>